Early into what we call the spring semester, months into the COVID-19 pandemic, I drove down to the university campus to check my mailbox. It had been months since I'd been there, and I needed to get out of the house, so two birds, one stone. In my box, I discovered a number of small envelopes, flyers and updates about university COVID policy, wear your mask and all that, and behind those scraps, a large manila envelope. When I pulled it out, I was immediately confused. The flap was unsealed. It wasn't already opened. It had never actually been sealed. At first, I assumed it must be some internal mail. I mean, surely nothing could have been mailed out that way and made it. Not deliberately, anyway. But the return address said Beaumont Correctional Facility in Texas, more than a thousand miles from the university. Hmm. The return address was from one of my people in prison, Chris Trigg, and I assumed it was the story I'd been waiting for. You see, I asked Chris some time ago to share his story on the podcast, and with the prison administration apparently content to ignore my repeated request for an interview, they never even bothered to respond to my multiple emails, I finally asked him to just write it down, in case we couldn't get permission at all. We could have just done it on the phone, but an inmate who does an interview without permission risks a phone shot, a ticket which could send them to solitary confinement, and even keep them locked up longer than they might otherwise be locked up. So I knew the letter was from Chris, and I figured I knew what it was, but why the unsealed envelope? The university was just a quick stop, so I rolled my mail up and tucked it under my arm, then headed back to my vehicle for the drive home. But by the time I arrived, my curiosity was piqued. How on earth were there 28 pages of handwritten notebook paper still inside? The envelope was bent and folded. It must have been upended more than once during its long journey. How had it survived? And what about the prison, which requires inmates to submit outgoing mail unopened for inspection? Why did the petty-ass guards or the administration choose to toss it in the outgoing bin without sealing it? It was a miracle the pages were still there, and as I began to read, it didn't take long to figure out why prison officials had decided to effectively toss this letter in the trash. Handwritten, in pencil, and with impressive penmanship, it was a bombshell, an indictment of the system. They didn't want me to get it, and they definitely don't want you to hear it. The story we're all going to share with you today is a powerful one, but unfortunately, it's not unusual. Even the funky stuff with the mail is not unusual. I can envision the smirk on a CO's face as he drops the package into the outgoing mail slot without sealing it. Whoops. Maybe they just save themselves the hassle next time and chuck it directly into the garbage. There's little in place to prevent that from happening if that's what they decide to do. But this letter and the accompanying story survived. Hello, welcome to the Dr. Junkie Show. I'm your host, Ben Boyce, and today's episode is about Chris Trigg, a fellow convicted person in a kindred spirit who was locked up for drug charges more than 20 years ago. Chris's story is yet another example of just how unjust our criminal justice system really is. This sort of shit happens every day in the so-called land of the free. I begin with the letter. Mr. Boyce, I hope these few lines find you well. Apologies for taking my sweet old time. I'm like an old train. It takes me a while to get up some momentum, especially when addressing the issues of my case which, I want to emphasize, is not unique. There are plenty of ghost dope cases in the war on drugs. You asked about jail hustles. I'm one of the best artists in the Fed, 
That's the federal prison system. I don't hustle my art too much though. I've also seen a lot of feats of ingenuity and creativity in my time. Necessity is the mother of invention. In the early 2000s, I was in Marion with a guy named Terry. He could take a pair of khakis and the lid to a Tupperware bowl and make a ball cap that you would have thought came off the wall of a sports shop. He would use the brown paper bags they brought our store to us in to make accordion file folders, and they look like they came from Office Depot. In the Supermax, they have a TV in the cell. They used to be color TVs that the staff would make black and white by turning down the color and then popping out the menu button so you couldn't turn it back up. Within five minutes, guys would figure out how to turn it back on without the menu button. The staff finally gave up that petty nonsense and left the color alone. I've seen dudes make stingers to heat water with pencil lead and headphone wire, fishing line out of plastic wrap, cheesecake out of powdered coffee creamer, ink from Vaseline, tamales out of corn chips, alcohol out of anything, including NutraSweet. I've seen paintings made with paint created with the color shells of M&M candies. Well, I'll let you digest this scribble and wait to hear back from you. All the best, Chris. Every semester I put together a podcast with the students of one of my classes at CU Denver, a class called Prison, Communication, and Social Justice. Last semester we created an audio edition of the annual Prison Poetry Magazine, Captured Words Free Thoughts, which my good friend Dr. Stephen Hartnett has been publishing now for almost 20 years. This semester I decided to bring my students on board to help tell Chris's story. My goal is to amplify those narratives which are stifled by systemic issues, to give voice to the voiceless, and to tell those stories which the government doesn't want told. Don't forget, at heart, this is also a story about what is really being done with our taxpayer dollars. You and I are complicit if we know about it and don't do anything. Chris's story goes like this. In regards to my case, I think it is wise to introduce the uninitiated to a little bit of historical and geographical reality. I'm from the birthplace of the meth industry in the U.S., or really, everywhere outside the theater of World War II. It's an area of desert and chaparral, of old towns that once evolved around orange groves and a few bygone industries like Kaiser Steel. I came of age in the 80s in that area known as the Inland Empire of Southern California. Meth was already abundant there even then, though in those days it was mostly P2P meth, an earlier, more potent concoction than the ephedrine meth of today. When I was an early teen, it was already an economic fixture of the area. I didn't invent it. I inherited it. The way an Iowa farm kid inherits corn or soybean. It was part of a culture and an economy that was the world I knew. In the drug war, it is a detail often overlooked. It's easier to blame someone. But often, those who receive the blame are the products of the environment created for them by the same system that then blames them for adapting to that environment. I believe the largest recorded seizure of meth occurred in Felon, California, in June 1994, 2,800 pounds. A pyramid of meth, cocaine, and heroin standing 10 feet tall, with an estimated street value of $18.5 million. It was all confiscated during two recent drug trafficking investigations in the Inland Empire and represents the largest DEA meth bust in U.S. history. A week later, in Riverside, California, 800 pounds. In 1994, before much of America had seen our drug. These are towns of the Inland Empire, and the land I call home. In January 1998, in an oil town called Gillette, Wyoming, 1,000 miles away from San Bernardino, California, where I lived, an individual was caught dabbling in small quantities of dope. I'd never set foot in Gillette, 
but I was vaguely aware that oil workers there were fueling a demand for the medicine that made 16 hours of tough labor easier. All the better to rack up those oil money overtime checks. Like a lot of people in Wyoming, this individual decided to cooperate with whatever agency suited him. This is the principal tactic of cops in the war on drugs. Arrest and scare some weak soul into turning on everyone he knows. He began doing counterbuys, then another ensnared individual did the same, and so on. Within three of these, we were now at an individual, individual buying, buying an, an ounce. ounce and selling an eight ball, or an eighth of an ounce. This individual flipped and led the cops to Casper, Wyoming. He did a controlled buy on a guy named Spiff, an auto shop operator, for a quarter pound or four ounces. This guy did the Wyoming flip and named me as his source for hundreds of pounds of California meth. He also went on naming and entrapping his wife, his brother-in-law, his best friend, and others who in turn entrapped others. Let me point out that the amount of meth and money seized from this hundreds of pounds trafficking ring was maybe two pounds and thirty thousand dollars from fifteen individuals. I had known him for maybe six months. I met him through a guy I had been in a boys' home with when we were fifteen who had moved to Wyoming. He was an Inland Empire guy with Inland Empire connections. The fetch was a local meth dealer who wanted more. I had access to more. On January 16, 1998, Fed called me. He owed me $25,000. Not exactly 100 pound money, more like two in 1998 money. I got that 25 I owe you. My cousin is going to fly into Ontario to go to a funeral in San Diego. Can I get some more meth? Hmm. Can I get some more meth? It sounded strange. People don't talk like that in that world. But then, this dude had flown into California wearing short shorts, like some 1978 stoner cat. I might be able to get a couple. I'll see. Of course, it was all a setup, and not even a good one. I felt it. They came deep. DEA from Wyoming and Riverside, California. Wyoming State Investigators. California Bureau of Narcotics. They thought they would find the big sack. They thought I'd flip. They thought wrong. Zero meth seized. $1,800 seized. A car seized. No gun and no cooperation. They told me if I didn't tell on people, I'd be the big fish and I'd get life. I'll I will never, never be inclined, be inclined to, to rain my misfortune life. down on people and make them suffer for knowing me. Where I come from, we call that honor. The country that compels you to betray your own family to get a deal. I don't know what that is. They weren't lying. I got indicted for 180 pounds of meth. I was the leader slash organizer of this group of bozos. For the most part, I'd never even heard of. I was extradited to Casper, Wyoming, a place I'd never been to. They also indicted a friend of mine named Dave, who had driven a blazer I was selling to Wyoming. The car was not carrying any drugs, but she had made the mistake of giving her phone number to Dvej and his family. They traced her identity and indicted her. Dvej said she carried meth in the car. Likely, the DEA and prosecutor wanted to scare her into flipping on me. The fact is, she didn't know much, and she refused to rat me out or anyone else. She was extradited to Wyoming as well. Both were held on no bail. Look, I don't claim innocence. I was selling pounds of meth. I come from a place where that is what we did. In the drug war, this is common. You flip some poor schmuck and blow it all up into some cartel takedown. U.S. Attorney, like Assistant U.S. Attorney Pat Crank, that's an irony, who pushed my case makes their names, their bones, off these hopped-up cases. It worked for him. He went on to be the AG of Wyoming. DEA agents and other narcs pad their resumes with cases like mine. Local attorneys make a living off court appointments, defending kingpins who can't afford an attorney. I use the term defending loosely. Mine basically told me I was guilty and had no chance in a Wyoming court. The snitches, of course, are selling info for leniency and other benefits. 
They get deals, and they weigh the deal against the level of cooperation. There are incentives for exaggerating the weight of drugs and other factors. Prosecutors are quick to claim that their informants are sworn to honesty, and if caught lying, their deals are withdrawn. Right off, I, I noticed the lie. lie in the indictment that I could disprove. Our buddy Josh claimed we were doing the damn thing for 18 months. 10 pounds a month, thus 180 pounds. But that was impossible. I had only known Veg for six of the months. For six of the months, I was allegedly giving him 10 pounds on every flip of the calendar page. I was in custody in California for a parole violation. I told my attorney, who told the U.S. attorney right in front of me. Obviously, Veg was caught in a lie. The prosecutor simply adjusted the case's factors to fit the new time and kept on trucking. Veg remained the only evidence against me and Veg and continued to work towards this deal. So what happened? What happened is it's all a sham. It has nothing to do with justice. It's about money, career advancement, power, and ambition. Issue of quantity and leadership are pivotal in federal drug cases. These are factors that determine your position on the federal sentencing guidelines. The hand-tying chart that produces draconian sentences for nonviolent drug offenders. To catch a snitch and a lie about the quantity and time frame should prejudice this whole tale. And if that's all they got, then the case should be tossed. But the show is what it is. Attorneys are paid by the same DOJ that pays prosecutors and the judge. Court-appointed ones are anyway. Mine has been buttering his bread plea bargaining for poor suckers all his life. He lived off court-appointed cases. He wasn't going to jeopardize his ability to get appointments by derailing the U.S. attorney's big flimsy case. He didn't even challenge Svesh's lie on the record. He passed his buddy Crank a freebie, giving him a heads-up on the lie on the down-low so he could correct it and proceed. He was so much the lapdog of the prosecutor that he refused to give me copies of the discovery, a.k.a. evidence. Don't go thinking this is unique. This is all too common. It's cropped. How do you think they fill the industrial prison complex with 2 million thousand people and keep it full? Let's talk about leadership or organizer roles in a drug conspiracy. Essentially, it's an enhancement for being a kingpin, or it's supposed to be. More often than not, it is a punishment for invoking your constitutional right to remain silent. They flip their way up the ladder so the first person not to flip becomes the supplier, which they then claim is the leader or organizer. It greatly increases the sentence and affects your confinement level afterwards. Recently, it made me ineligible for any benefits from that hollowed-out reform act called the First Step. Recently, President Biden, in discussing justice reform, said he'd like to do away with mandatory minimums, except for leader or organizer defendants. Who is the leader or organizer in my case? I saw fresh pounds of meth. 10 pounds a month? Not likely. That would equate to 100,000 doses. There were 400,000 people in the whole state. Is one quarter the population getting high? Fesh came to California. He admittedly arranged to move the drugs to Wyoming. He admittedly distributed the drugs to people he knew. People I didn't know. People who I've never met or heard of. What, what am I organizing? organizing? Who, who am, am I leading? You have the right to remain silent. If you choose to invoke that right, it shall not be held against you. Except for now, you are provided lawyer, and you presume they have the best interest of their client at heart. You presume a judge who is essentially a referee will blow the whistle when there is a foul. They speak Latin and legalize in the courtroom. The common citizen cannot understand the common law because it's not conducted in the common language. 
Omission is acceptance in the courtroom. Basically, Basically, when your lawyer or the prosecutor does something like cover up or lie by the main witness, and you don't get to challenge it in court, even if the judge knew this is wrong, he's not obligated to tell you or to do anything about it unless you bring it up on the record. But wait, isn't that the duty of the lawyer to cry foul? Drug quantities are used to calculate your base level on the federal sentencing guidelines. The more drugs, the more time. But this is another scam. I've seen how they calculated this quantity in my case. I wasn't charged with drugs I was caught with. No one was caught with 180 pounds or 130 pounds or even 10 pounds. We call this invisible drug quantity. Ghost dope. Ghost dope. I was charged with the words of man selling a fantasy for a reduced sentence. To further the illusion, they go back in time and calculate ghost dope quantities, as they did in my case. The result is that a person who may have possessed 10 pounds at one time can be charged with hundreds of pounds and sentenced like a kingpin. There is an irony in that they call the bill bill that that created this sentencing structure truth in sentencing and claim that it eliminates sentencing disparities between rich and poor or races. Some alleged kingpins, Fabio Ochoa Medellin Cartel, 30 years, General Manuel Norega, 30 years, Benjamin Arlano, Tijuana Cartel, 25 years, Osiel Cardenia, founder of the Zetas, 20 years, single mother, 411 operator, 15 years, and me, 30 years. I also received an enhancement for a gun. I was never caught with a gun. No gun was found in the search of my residence. I said I had a gun. With a lawyer like the one I had, and the fact that we were in a place where we knew no one far from our homes and families in an area with a culture quite different than the one we were brought up in, it looked real grim. Our lawyers told us it was grim. To be real, it's not just our word against vice. The prosecutor will run a parade of DEA agents and experts to prep up the flimsy case. A jury of Wyomers might be awestruck, blinded by the mystique of the secret agent. Lose and you get life. He might get 30 if she's lucky. Lucky. They came at us with a deal, a non-cooperation plea agreement. They would recommend 30 years for me and 15 for her, but we had to both agree or the deal would be withdrawn. So, my life at stake now meant her life was at stake too. If I refused or she did and we lost at trial, we'd both be doing decades. In my case, I would never get out. For drugs. drugs. We took the deal. If you could call it that, the judge in sentencing me called it mercy because it was less than life. They filled the court with school children made it a field trip. They are so out of touch with reality, they take 30 years from a man with no evidence of any real sort and call it mercy. So that's Chris's story. Hopefully Chris isn't locked up for much longer, but like many things that involve the criminal justice system, it's hard to put an exact date on when this is going to end. Thanks to my UC Denver communication class. If you want to write Chris, you can reach him at Chris Trigg, T-R-I-G-G. His prison number is 113 113- 83112. You have to include that on the envelope. He's at USP Beaumont. That's B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T. P.O. Box 26030. Beaumont, Texas. 77720. If you were touched by Chris's story and want to reach out, I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. It's probably starting to become obvious by this point in this podcast that stories like Chris's are not unique. The so-called criminal justice system is producing situations like this every day. 
But the more we talk about it and bring light to these situations, the more we can slowly make changes, both to the law and to our own perception of the world, of drugs and those who use them. Take care of yourselves and the addicted people in your life. Take time to ask them how they're doing with their addictions. And practice non-judgmental listening. Trust me, we really appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Ben Boyce.